It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group and page. This week's episode, Jack the Ripper. The Ripper. The Ripper. All right, guys, I kind of want to set the scene here. It's the year 1888, and we're in dirty old London, the world's largest city and capital of the British Empire with six million people. So it's overpopulated, and it's dirty, and the streets are full of urine and mud, which is really horse dung, because there's 300,000 horses walking around each day. That's a 1,000 tons a day of dung. The air is smoky. It's full of soot. It's in the sheep. It's in your face. It's in your hair. Everything smells like ammonia, because there's no sewage. You have these vast waves of immigration from all over Europe, including Ireland after the Great Famine, and these people are living in complete poverty in slums, and these slums are right down the street from these affluent areas, and it's like this stark comparison. Yeah, and one thing also is it's uh, for the very reason of immigration and stuff, it's not uncommon to see an unfamiliar face, you know what I mean? That's true. People knew each other, but a lot of people did not know each other. And disease was rampant. You had high child mortality and a low life expectancy. And this was especially true in the Whitechapel District in the East End. I would also, since it's pertinent to this case, I would also like to point out that as part of the profiling of the, um, the acts we are about to talk about, uh, oh, before I say that, actually, I'll preface this case by saying, uh, this one ain't for the faint of heart. Do not listen yeah. to this in front of your kids and probably don't listen yep. to it at all. It gets pretty gruesome at some points. <laughs> so I just oh, want to say that. Yeah, just, you know, it just just be forewarned, okay? There, there are definitely going to be some graphic descriptions. There's no doubt about that because we, we want to get into the actual reality of what happened. And, and there's a lot of people that may be familiar with, with the term Jack the Ripper. There's quite a few people. Actually, most people, at least in this country, will be very familiar with it, um, obviously in, in England also. But, but I don't think a lot of people are really fam- truly familiar with the – the level of brutality and, and the heinous uh, actions actually occurred during these murders. It, it wasn't that there was a ton of murders. It wasn't like, you know, a, a serial murder that was going on a fucking, a long killing spree, you know, a legendary killing spree. The, the, the legendary thing about it was the brutality in the murders themselves. Well, and I think, you know, if you look at the time period, this became a worldwide sensation And part of that is because of the press. You have all these people who are learning to read and the literacy rates are increasing. Each little township probably has a dozen independent newspapers and they're all reporting about Jack the Ripper. It was the case during the Autumn of Terror. And there's a lot of stuff that was released in in those news articles that, that... was misinformation or something that was true. just sensationalized. Just not true. You yeah. Know what I mean? So, 
Well, <laughs> oh no, how could it be true, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, so sometimes like some of the truth could have been a little bit sensationalized or it, for that very reason, it can be a little bit harder now, you know, very far in the future to find the truth, right? Because right, it's, there's it's, a lot more you have to go through in order to find. It's been over a hundred years. Truth, I mean, right? people are saying, oh, we'll find more information with time. And now we have the internet. Well, what evidence, what, what more evidence are you really going to find after all this time? Well, actually, you might find more evidence because it turns out that throughout the years, a lot of souvenir hunters and enthusiasts have taken, for example, original police files. Or, you know, when, when London was getting the crap bombed out of it in World War II, they think a lot of it was lost and stuff like that. So it is possible that lost documents might be refound. That's completely plausible. I know there was a document that got lost and then it was anonymously turned back into Scotland Yard sometime later and it's been yeah. authenticated. So you're right about that. And you never know what kind of scientific methods will be discovered. So if you go back, I don't know when when DNA was started to be used for crimes, but I don't know if you go back 100 years, they wouldn't have been, they would not have even been able to conceive of DNA evidence. So maybe 50 years from now, somebody will come up with some kind of new science that will completely open new avenues of investigation for old cases like this. You I never don't know. Think, I don't think they even had fingerprinting. Back then, in order for someone to be found guilty, they either had to be caught in the act or confess. So if you didn't have one of those two elements, you weren't going to get an arrest. Yep, pretty much. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so, like I was going to, which is, which is actually, which uh, if I if I may interject, which which is actually a pretty damn good segue into the uh, the first murder, which is uh, Mary Ann Nichols. But wait, before is, you get to the first murder, oh. I want to just go on a, like a brief overview of of the case in general before okay. we talk more details about each specific murder. And uh, yeah. I wanted to start that with saying, so Agent Ether said that the streets were filthy with all sorts of nasty stuff. So apparently, in the time, if you were out on the town and you wanted to hook up with a prostitute, you'd just be like, hey, baby, like, you wouldn't really go to a room. I guess you would just bang them right there in the middle of the road or whatever, maybe find a nice dark <laughs> corner. Well, they didn't have rooms. They they shared these lodges where there were beds, you know, and, and you would pay night to night. A lot of these people, you know, they didn't have regular homes, and... Having a bed to sleep in depended on their livelihood. Right. And so part of profiling how he killed his victims was that, okay, so it's implausible that the victims would actually lie down to have sex with their customers. Mm. So they, uh, what they think happened was he would proposition them and they would like start to raise their skirts or whatever. And then he would go in for the strangle. But uh, maybe we're getting ahead of, ahead of ourselves a little bit. But let's just a, a brief overview of the case in general. Is uh, So we're talking about 1888 East London. The killings all took place within about a one-mile area. This Obviously, this is not the first serial killer on record, but it's probably the first one to be popularized by mass print media, uh, not just locally or nationally, but internationally. This was a big, big story of the time. It might be one of the first things ever to go viral because the way the media was changing, it was it was kind of a new thing back then. That's a really good way of describing it, viral. Yeah. 
And as as we mentioned earlier, kind of alluded to, the press also made up a lot of stuff. And this has sort of added and changed the legend over the years. But I've done a lot of reading on older newspaper articles for this show. And at some point, I just stopped using old newspaper articles as a source because they're almost always at least a little bit inaccurate and they're often wildly inaccurate. So you can see that with this case too, that they just make stuff up. So, you know, so if if you're looking at old newspaper articles in this case, don't expect them to be reliable or accurate, but yeah, so the, the areas we're talking about here is mostly the Whitechapel area, but also I guess, um, Spitalfields, Aldgate and the city of London proper, I guess some they, but they're all kind of like the same area. The, the actual number of victims isn't really agreed upon totally. Most people will agree at the very least that there's like four of them were his victims and probably five. And there's people who think there might be, a, you know, more 11 or, you know, 15 or who knows how many. There's a lot of a lot of murders in the area that are sort of like, oh, that's kind of similar, but not quite enough to really count it. It's hard to say. Well, because because of the level of sophistication that you know um, law enforcement had at that time to investigate wasn't very high. You know, right. I mean, they, it's not like they had all the tools they have nowadays. You know, there, there was mostly intuition and just plain hard evidence and, and uh, witness testimony. Yeah, there wasn't I mean? a lot of detective work going on. Some people think, well, the public, the general public, felt at the time because there was a lot of unrest surrounding this whole case and the fact they couldn't catch Jack was that they were just there for crowd control and to keep the peace. They weren't really there to uh, solve this crime. And their incompetence was highlighted in the media and by the press. Yeah. Just as one example of a murder that we're not sure that he did, but some people think he did. There's one lady who was murdered um, by somebody put a blunt object in her vagina and used it on her so ferociously that she actually bled to death. And it's, it bears similarities to Jack the Ripper in that, uh, you have this very unusual, violent, almost, you know, or sexual, or at least apparently sexual crime. But it's on the other hand, Jack the Ripper tended to get his victims by opening up their abdomens and then taking out, their uterus and their vagina from the abdominal cavity, not going from the traditional route like this one lady did. So, but on the other hand, the the violence involved and just the way it was done is unusual. So it's, there's a lot of murders like that, that are kind of stick out as very unusual and sort of seem to fit the profile, but they don't really, at least not a hundred percent. So some people might think that, well, maybe this, this is sort of like an outlying, maybe he was either trying something new or maybe if it was before the five canonical victims, which is uh, that those. So there's five that are considered to be the five canonical victims that most people are pretty sure he did. So outside of that, it could have been him, you know, honing his methods or trying something new or trying to figure out something before that. We don't really know for sure. But I think on this case, we're going to stick mostly with just the five canonical victims and not talk too much about the other ones because there really isn't that much time. I mean, there there's entire podcasts who all they talk about is Jack the Ripper, just to give you an idea of just how much details are possible to go into on this case. Uh, yeah, anyway, sorry to interrupt, ETA. What were you saying? 
Some of the very interesting um, investigation that I have seen was actually uh, conducted by this guy, Christer Holgin, and he's a Swedish fellow that uh, actually um, pointed out a very interesting situation within the first murder. Uh, and, and the first murder um, was actually her, uh, Mary Ann Nichols. Uh, her friend supposedly called her Polly Nichols. And so you might hear some some different names when it, when that individual is, is uh, mentioned, but uh, at any rate, the first man that was on scene supposedly uh, was this guy called Charles Allen Cross, and um, he he was uh, actually contacted by the first man that was actually um, that actually testified in the inquiry later, and his name was uh, Mr. Robert Paul. And uh, Robert Paul walked up on this guy that was standing over this body, right? And um, the guy had talked his way into, in, you know, uh, convincing Robert Paul that, you know, he didn't have any, have anything to do with this murder. He had found this body as well, right? So both uh, Charles Cross and Robert Paul uh, started walking back on their way to basically find a policeman to notify them of this murder, this dead body that was in the street here. And um, when they had found a uh, officer, um, both of them gave their statements, but their statements actually uh, were different. Uh, Cross and um, Paul basically, so Paul said that like, you know, he, he said that he found Cross standing over the body. Cross had found the body just like uh, Mr. Paul had, right? Just uh, randomly, supposedly. But when, when Cross had talked to the officer, he actually, which by the way, the, the officer's name was uh, Jonas Mason. Um, so when he talked to this guy, he he, he told him that there was already a police on scene, you know, and that he was basically just passing on the word, you know. And so some people say that the reason why uh, Charles Cross said this was to not raise too much suspicion. So because, I mean, it, it, it would be natural for any policeman to, you know, just assume like the two first people that may have came across a body might have something to do with the murder. So you have to make sure that those people, those people are scrutinized, right? You have to, you know, uh, ask the right question questions. That's for sure. And so, uh, people think that he may have, uh, said this in order to like lower the level of suspicion, you know what I mean? Which is kind of interesting, I think. But uh, later, though, um, on the on day two of the inquiry for the murder itself, which, by the way, you know, is, is very interesting. And I've heard this point brought up before as well. Why would one of the first two people that came across that body be questioned within the, I mean, the second day of the inquiry? Why, why, I mean, how would that not occur on the first day, you know? But, you know, I, I think that's a, a legitimate point to, to, to bring, but um, there's not so much evidence to really, you know, you know, find out why that was the case. You know what I mean? Some people say that the the reason why was because uh, Mr. Cross was possibly Jack the Ripper himself. And, and you know, it took him two days uh, to, to get there to actually testify because, you know, obviously he, he you know, was reluctant, right? So, uh, but at any rate, um, it's very interesting because uh, that fellow, that the investigator that I had uh, mentioned earlier, Christopher Holgin, Holgren, um, he actually found out that uh, that Mr. Charles Allen Cross, within the in inquiry, had given his address to be 22 Doveton Street. And um, there's actually quite a few records as, as far as like who stayed in that area and um, that 
address in particular had solid records as far as who had rented there or who had owned the property, who had lived there. So that name had never actually like been on on you know any of the uh, de- you know the, the uh, agreements for rental or you know any of the deeds or anything. And it wasn't a name that he had found to be present like anywhere in the area really. Like Cross was a, a you know a name, a last name that people had in the area, but that exact name wasn't uh, you know in any of the records. At the same the, at the same time at this day and time, uh, people uh, didn't have like social security cards or identification. So whatever name you yeah. chose for yourself at that point in time was your name. Yeah, yeah, you could lie. There's mm-hmm. no doubt about that. Yeah. I mean, it, it might, I might, it might still be, you know, um, written down within a record somewhere, but it, yeah, there's no reason to believe that that was the actual real name of the person that was giving that name. There's no doubt about that. So yeah. Um, but there actually was, a uh, individual that was of a very similar name that lived in the area and his name was actually Charles Allen Leshmere. And, um, I don't know that that that's a name that has been thrown around a little bit here and there as far as like you know that could have been the same person but just just because obviously it's a almost the same name just a, a different last name you know what I mean but um that 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 was a person that was actually um registered to have rented that address on 22 Dubna Street so that that was the main reason why that person was was uh, thought to have possibly been the actual like Jack the Ripper or the person that was giving the name Charles Allen Cross was actually Charles Allen Leshmere, you know? So, you know, because of that, you know, that, that, uh, line of investigation, I guess you could say some people, you know, um, think that possibly, you know, if that is true, that that those two people are the same people person, sorry. (laughs) Um, then obviously that person lied. So why would they lie? Well, possibly because it could have been Jack the Ripper himself, which by the way, as a little side note, um, I, I just want to say, uh, that's actually, actually what I named my butthole is a uh, Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that, that, uh, whichever name you want to call him, that cross fella is, if you look at, you know, the evidence, there's not really a whole lot of evidence to really pin it on anybody. But just his whole situation is really suspicious. And out of everybody, he's one of the more credible ones, I believe. You know, I mean, he was he was right there at the... And by the way, the victim had only been dead moments before she was found, right? So so there there wasn't a whole lot of time. And if you look at the, the area she was found in, it would be very difficult to escape from that area quickly with nobody seeing you at all. On the other hand, it's not like they had modern streetlights, so it was dark and everything, but still, it's it just kind of makes you wonder. Like, I think that he's a, a, one of the more plausible suspects of the whole thing of, uh, you know, for, for who Jack the Ripper actually was. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy, too, because, like, there, there's been so many, as many, like, famous names or notable names of that era or of that uh, that area, you know, as many famous names or notable names as there are, are as many like uh, people have that, that have been accused of being Jack the Ripper, you know, like if there's some, somebody that of notable, you know, stature in that area or of that time period, like they've been accused of it. You know, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's, it's, it's insane. The amount of different um, theories that have come up around this case. 
it's incredible, really, the amount of interest, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk about the five canonical victims. Who were they and when were they killed? Because it kind of paints a really interesting timeline here. So the one you just mentioned, Mary Ann Nichols, that was Friday, August 31st. The next one we have is Annie Chapman, which was Saturday, September 8th. And next we have Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, who were both killed on Sunday, September 30th. And that's sort of an interesting case because it looks like the murder of Elizabeth Stride was interrupted. So when uh, a little bit very shortly thereafter, when Catherine Eddowes is murdered, she's up to that point by far the most grisly mutilation. And some people suspect that might be maybe he was sort of, you know, pent up or maybe angry at being caught. So he really let loose on her. And then the that f- one, and, and there's a photo of that one too, which by the way, I don't recommend people looking at. Yeah, don't. <laughs> it's it's, hor- it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's just, good Lord, just good Lord. I yeah. mean, whoever did that was so damn disturbed. Uh, I can't even imagine the level, that level. I don't know. Even but, the yeah. police sketch of it is pretty disturbing and it's just a sketch, yeah. you know? And then the last is Mary Jane Kelly uh, on Friday, November 9th. And she was the only one of the five that was actually killed indoors. The other ones were all killed outdoors, you know, in front of houses, in front of, you know, gathering places or whatever. And you know what? Those are the photos that I was thinking of. Oh, the Mary Jane Kelly. Yeah. Those are the ones I was thinking of. Yeah. Don't look at those ones. Yeah. She's also, (laughs) yeah, I didn't know that I'd seen, I'd seen the sketch for Catherine Eddowes. I didn't know of any photo for her that was. Uh, that was available, but um, I didn't look all that hard either. So I just assumed you had found one that I hadn't. I just skipped <laughs> that entire subtopic. Like, I don't want to read about the mutilations. I don't want to think about them because I know that they're so horrific. And I know it's important to touch on them so you can understand the persona that is Jack the Ripper. But I definitely concentrated my research on not that part of the case. Yeah. And one other victim, Martha Tabram, uh, was actually predates the canonical five on August 7th. And I, I don't know if we'll get around to her or not, but of of the ones that we're not quite sure if the Ripper did it or not, she's probably the one that's most likely to have been killed by him. But uh, so th- that's the basic timeline and the basic ones. And all of the victims are prostitutes and they were all probably really drunk when they were murdered. So this kind of, we're kind of starting to see a little picture of what he's up to. I mean, if you're out looking to murder somebody early in the morning, like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., whatever, and you see this, you know, this prostitute that's stumbling around, barely conscious, she's drinking so much, and, you know, you go and proposition her, and, uh, I mean, easy target, right? You, You see this pattern, and it's the same thing for each of these, except for the last one who was killed indoors. That's why they think those five are related because they're all very, very similar in, in how how they were killed and how they the victims were you know targeted even and all that stuff. So as I mentioned earlier, he would they they think what he would do is he would proposition them and as they were lifting their skirts, he would strangle them, and he would after he would strangle them either unconscious or dead, he would place them on the ground, and they think that he placed them rather than letting them fall or throwing them or whatever, because they didn't find any bruising or any damage to their heads or the back of the heads, which probably would have happened if they had been thrown or dropped to the ground. 
And also they think that he was strangling them because when he cut, he would, so he would strangle them, put them on the ground, and then he would slash their neck. And a lot of them didn't have all that much blood around them, meaning that they were probably already dead when the necks were slashed. So their heart were no longer pumping blood. Uh, the way he mutilated all of the victims was very specific because he would place them down with their, their head, their head, uh, to his left, right? So they were laying on the ground with their, the right of the victim's body was facing him and he would kneel next to their body or by their feet. And that's when he would do his mutilations. And you can tell by like the direction of the cuts and things like that, that that's how he did it. So we have a very, very specific way. I mean, like even placing their head to his left on the ground, like that's pretty ultra specific that you have in all of these cases. It's very similar, except for the one, the fifth one, which was found on her bed, which may or may not be related. Who knows? But another interesting thing is that a lot of the investigators noted they never found any evidence of sexual abuse to the victims. But then again, it's not like they had super high-tech stuff back then, so well, it's hard to there, say. There was, there was genital um, mutilation, though. Yeah, but the, what, I, what I mean by uh, sexual abuse, I mean like he didn't have sex with them in any way before he murdered them or after he murdered them, as far as any investigations are aware of. According to the, uh, you know, the, the mutilations that happened, I would definitely just assume that this person had some definite sexual frustrations of some sort. Right. You yeah. Know, that, oh, that that's was for man- sure. Manifesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Some hatred towards women specifically. Yeah, without a doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. And on each of the victims, he would take some sort of organ or body part as a trophy. Like let's say a kidney or a heart or something. And the, the doctors that examined the victims, they said that he must have had some kind of medical experience or knowledge based on how the organs were removed and how cuts were made to the body. Because in, in some of these cases, he only had minutes, like like five minutes to do. Yeah, the his, timelines yeah. Are, are interesting. We yeah. have, because of a lot of witnesses, you know, we have witnesses say, oh, I entered the alleyway. And right as I entered the alleyway, I heard the clock on the local building striking two in the morning or whatever. So we have some pretty tight timelines. So we have some very, very narrow windows that he was able to do these cuts. And we're talking also in near pitch black uh, conditions. So if well, and, and some of these some of these victims were also like disemboweled, like some of their small yeah. intestines and stuff were like placed, per, you know, um, on purpose, like above the right shoulder, like like uh, like to do like all of the things that like this this murderer did in the timelines that like some of these murders supposedly happened is actually uh, a, like like you said, it's pretty damn tight, like 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 uh, I don't know, I mean, I, I don't think the timelines are necessarily accurate. You know what I mean? Yeah, he so he knew what he was doing. He got in, he got out. He did it very quickly, made some very, very accurate surgical cuts with knowledge of anatomy. And it, so, for example, if, if he was cutting out the uterus, he would cut far enough down on the vaginal canal to keep like the cervix and everything intact. So he'd get like the whole thing out. So it, it's, it wasn't somebody just blindly hacking out organs. It was somebody who really knew what he was doing. And I'm sorry to be gross, but like that's why they think that it was somebody with some kind of surgical knowledge because of the way he cut up the bodies. You had to have had surgical knowledge to make these cuts. There's no other way around there, it. There was, there was purpose to the cuts. Yeah. Your average layperson 
even your average layperson today, nowadays, the average person has a better understanding of anatomy than they did back then. Even today, you still wouldn't be able to make those cuts without some kind of experience to be that accurate and do it that quickly. So that's that's the basic profile. And all of the victims were murdered on the weekend or on a holiday, which suggests that he had some sort of regular employment because otherwise they would have just been random, right? But they were all at very specific times. So it's we have this profile of this guy and he, he did these things in a very specific way, and yet we still have, to this day, absolutely no clue who he was at all, right? But, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the victims. You already mentioned Mary Ann Nichols, who was, she was aged 44 when she was murdered. And uh, so I took a little bit of notes on her, but I'll, I'll skip over, over her events because you already went over pretty much. But uh, we didn't talk too much specifically about about her injuries. So I have a from the inquest testimony here. So what they said about her was five teeth were missing. I wish I could do this in an English accent, but you know, <laughs> I suck Four at accents. Teeth there. They Four were missing, one teeth they? were missing, and there was a slight <laughs> laceration. That's uh, horrible. But each, like, like every time I really give like good effort to like uh, a good British accent, I just kind of feel like I'm just mocking yeah. the accent. Like, don't mock the English. <laughs> it's not even close. At least my accents are horrible. So anyways, yeah. <laughs> the five teeth were missing and there was a slight laceration of the tongue. There was a bruise running along the lower part of the jaw on the right side of the face that might have been caused by a blow from a fist or pressure from a thumb. There was a circular bruise on the left side of the face, which also might have been inflicted by the pressure of the fingers. On the left side of the neck, about one inch below the jaw, there was a laceration, or I mean, let me say that again, one inch below the jaw, there was an incision about four inches in length and ran from a point immediately below the ear on the same side, but an inch below and commencing about one inch in front of it was a circular incision, which terminated at a point about three inches below the right jaw. That incision completely severed all the tissues down to the vertebrae. The large vessels of the neck on both sides were severed. The incision was about 8 inches in length. The cuts must have been caused by a long-bladed knife, moderately sharp, and used with great violence. No blood was found on the breast, either of the body or the clothes. There were no injuries about the body until just about the lower part of the abdomen. Two or three inches from the left side was a wound running in a jagged manner. The wound was a very deep one, and the tissues were cut through. There were several incisions running across the abdomen. There were three or four similar cuts running downwards on the right side, all of which had been caused by a knife which had been used violently and downwards. The injuries were from left to right and might have been done by a left-handed person. All the injuries had been caused by the same instrument. So that's a quick rundown on her injuries. Now, our next victim, Annie Chapman, she was about 5 feet tall and 47 years old, of pallid complexion, blue eyes, and dark brown wavy hair. She was a little on the thick side, supposedly, but she was also suffering from some sort of disease, possibly tuberculosis or syphilis. And she was an alcoholic, as were all of them. It's, you know, reading some of these descriptions, I feel like pretty much everybody in London was just drunk all the time back then. It's the impression I get. Like, they were just all boozing it up all day long. Anyways, her murder, remember, occurred, uh, 
on September 8th. So starting on September 7th, she was seen at 5 p.m. at her lodging house, and she was sober at that point. She was ill, but she has to go out to earn money for her lodgings. Um, At 11.30, she returns to the lodging house. At 12.10, Frederick Stevens has a pint of beer with her and says she is drunk. This is a witness we're talking about here. So he was interviewed later and said that she was drunk. Um, He says that she didn't leave the lodging again until about 1 a.m. At 1.35, she returned to the lodging house again eating a baked potato. The night watchman asked her for money, Mm. but she doesn't have it. So she has to leave to go get it. I love baked potatoes. Especially with, with cheese and chives and No, that and was bacon. very common back then. I mean, they, to be subsidized off of a simple baked potato. I mean, food was plentiful, but it's not like they all got a wide variety of food. And potatoes were cheap. But if you got good, if you got good fixings along, along <laughs> with that baked potato, you can make some, some delicious sustenance. And they didn't know, have access to kitchens. Instead, what they did is they had like a community fire So people would just take their potatoes and put them on sticks and roast them over the fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just like in Red Dead Online. We do that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, at 4.45 a.m., a Mr. John Richardson entered the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street on his way to work. He stopped to remove a piece of leather flapping on his boot. He was less than a yard from where she would be found, but he didn't see anything. And at 5.30 a.m., Elizabeth Long saw Chapman with a man at 29 Hanbury Street. She hears the man say, will you? And Annie replied, yes. And the man had his back towards her. A few moments later, after she saw the victim, a carpenter living next door at 27 Hanbury Street went into his backyard, probably to take a dump in the outhouse. He heard voices on the other side of his fence And he heard a woman say no, and then something fall against the fence. Her body was found just just before 6 a.m. by John Davis, who lived on the third floor of number 29. And the the descriptions, like we're saying, like a really tight timeline. And we have somebody uh, on the other side of the fence, but imagine this place is very, very densely populated. So much so that in order to get your groove on, you're just, you know, jump into somebody's backyard, basically. In this well, case, and, and also like alcoholism was was extremely prevalent. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like everybody drank. Like water wasn't necessarily like the most off, you know, common liquid consumed. Well, it couldn't <laughs> you know be. Know I mean? The water was contaminated. Yeah. Yes, so beer absolutely. was definitely yeah, the right. safest thing to drink. But the the yeah, environment. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The environment that these people are living in, like you, your bathroom's in the backyard. You got to go out there. It's early in the morning. It's dark out. And you're like, man, I got to go. You hear some shenanigans next door. And that's just like, that's normal. Like you don't even think twice about it. And the cops ask you about it later. And you're like, ah, yeah, kind of heard something, whatever. No big, no big yeah, deal. I, I heard, I heard some freaking shenanigans. What of it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's normal. That's always shenanigans in that yard. That's number 29, man. <laughs> you know, but so it, and also like we have, it's so frustrating because probably a witness saw the back of the man that murdered her. Possibly, maybe, I don't know, but this, this is a lot of these cases are like that where we have witnesses. Like I won't always, we, I don't think we have time to talk about all the witnesses, what they said in depth, but a lot of the witnesses saw men with the victims, but didn't really get that good of a look at them. And they were all prostitutes. So it was not unusual to see them with men early in the morning 
but one of them had to have seen this guy. I guarantee you, one of them had to have seen this guy. Like this, I don't know. Yeah, and and all the recorded testimony was so like conflicting. Like some people say that like the the individual that they saw with this uh, particular woman was like grizzled, and then some some say that he was like you know well kept. And then other people say that he looked like, you know, like uh, he had like, you know, fancy clothing, uh, uh, you know. Yeah. It, it, like other, others said that he looked like he was like, you know, a vagrant or something. Like it just, it's uh, like so conflicting. All these different reports of like, you know, different people at the very same time saying that they saw somebody with this particular woman. It's just like, well, obviously the woman was was engaged in a particular, a particular uh, trade, you know, but but that doesn't necessarily mean that like uh, every single person that she had contacted was, you know, potentially Jack the Ripper, you know, but one of them was, there's no doubt about that, obviously, you know, but, but I, which one was it though? You know, like there's so many, like I said, there's so many conflicting reports. It's like, what, damn, what, which, which trail do you really follow? You yeah. Know? Well, Hey, it was dark. Everybody was drunk. So their recollections are not going to be necessarily all that accurate. <laughs> yeah, 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 just just like the uh, Bohemian Grove. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of a love field. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> like I'm not sure if that has anything to do with Jack the Ripper, but hey, you never know. No, you know? not at all. Not not at all in any way, shape, or form. But <laughs> I still, I still, I still submit it as an interesting uh, situation. Yeah, we got. I think we have to do Bohemian Grove at some point. But let's get back to it. Oh hell yeah! All right. So we have another inquest statement from Dr. George Baxter Phillips. And uh, what a, that's a goddamn British name right there, dude. George Baxter Phillips. All right, anyways, here we go. Here's what he said about this particular victim. The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top, and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limb was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incision through the skin were jagged and reached right round the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, Smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. So in this in this case, this might indicate perhaps that the victim was actually not dead when her neck was cut because there's blood 14 inches away on the fence. On the other hand, who knows? Maybe it got there from some other way, like a smearing or something from the hand. Who knows? I mean... For the, for the victim's sake, I, I hope that she was dead by that point. You yeah. Know, obviously. But well, like, yeah, that, that, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. So I think the one thing that we're pretty sure of is when they were mutilated, the victims were dead. At least, at least there's that. Yeah. They, he cut their necks first, which is, you know, that's a good for them, you know, that they didn't have to suffer through that. Yeah. That, that's probably the first most like a common, um, injury. Is is it seems like the neck injury like on, on a lot of these victims were the first one, one, one of the first injuries at least, you know, uh, you know, because like a lot of these uh, victims, uh, their carotid artery was severed or at least slashed, you know, yeah, um, it, which would obviously make you bleed out pretty damn fast. I think like once your carotid artery is uh 
is a compromise. I think you have like something like like four minutes or something like that, four to six minutes or something like that before you bleed out. So so that would you know that would potentially coincide with uh, the time scales in which we, we we see you know. Yeah. So continue on with the inquest statement. The instrument used at the throat and abdomen was the same. It must have been a very sharp knife with a thin, narrow blade and must have been at least six to eight inches in length, probably longer. The injuries could not have been inflicted hey. by a bayonet or sword bayonet. What's up? Hey, can, can, I, can I just say something real quick? What's Which, that? Uh, by the way, I'm just thinking about this in the moment, okay? Uh-huh. Okay. When you said that, like, um, okay, so I, I myself are, are, you know, I'm, I'm a fisherman. I, I'm very inter- interested in fishing, hmm. right? So mm-hmm. when it comes to filleting a fish, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, there, there's potentially a great amount of precision involved. Hmm. There's a lot you have to know. There's actually a lot of anatomy you need to, you need to know, but you know, um, when it comes to, uh, different fishes in, in, in order to make a, a fillet out of uh, one fish as opposed to another, mm-hmm. you, you, you need to be uh, aware of the anatomy of that fish. So I actually think that like, you know, depending on the, uh, the level of intellect of this individual, it could have also been um, a fisherman. Hmm. Well, also I think actually I kind of like that because we have a very narrow window, just a couple of months here when these murders happened and uh, then they stopped mysteriously. So a lot of people think that yeah. one way or another, the murderer went by or he went away. So what if he was a fisherman yeah. and they were in the area for just a couple of months and then they left uh, to go fish somewhere else or whatever. And yeah. uh, that's why he was gone. Because let's face it, somebody who's going to do this, I don't think somebody's going to do this sort of thing. They're just going to kill five people and then stop doing it. If they stop doing it, they stop because they have to, not because they want to. Like they die or yes. they get caught doing something committed. else. Committed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what if I like I really like that theory because you're right. You do need a lot of precision for that. I'm I've I'm not a fisherman, but I have bought from Costco sometimes you get fish that they're just like whole fish and you gotta cut them up and stuff. So I could definitely see what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's a good theory. I hadn't thought of that one. Back to the inquest. Um uh, could not have been inflicted by a bayonet or a sword bayonet. They could have been done by such an instrument as a medical man used for post-mortem purposes, but the ordinary surgical cases might not contain such an instrument. Those used by the slaughtermen, well ground down, might have caused them. He thought that the knives used by those in the leather trade would not be long enough in the blade. There were indications of anatomical knowledge, he should say that the deceased had been dead at least two hours and probably more when he first saw her, but it was right to mention that it was a fairly cool morning and that the body would be more apt to cool rapidly from its having lost a great quantity of blood. There was no evidence of a struggle having taken place. He was positive the deceased entered the yard alive, and a handkerchief was uh, around the throat of the deceased when he saw it early in the morning. He should say it was not tied on after the throat was cut. So also, uh, this is written like, kind of like in the third person, like he's writing in the report, like he should say, it's kind of weird the way it's written, if that's confusing to anybody. It's confusing to me too. Um, also, this last bit about handkerchiefs, so the apparently the lady was wearing a handkerchief around her throat, and then it was uh, there before she was cut. 
But a lot of descriptions and stuff, I think it was pretty common at the time to wear some kind of handkerchief around your throat. I think that was just maybe like one of the fashions or something. But um, anyways, yeah, so she was mutilated horribly and she had died of suffocation. Her Basically, her abdomen had been opened intestines were taken out of her body and placed over her shoulder the uterus and the upper portion of her vagina and parts of the bladder had been removed and those were not found the cuts were clean and the way she was cut up was somehow familiar the the attacker had to have been familiar with anatomy or pathological examinations or something in order to know where to make these cuts and like so like to remove the uterus without like chopping up everything around it but to cleanly remove it like you, some of these cuts you're not going to really be able to see what you're doing especially in pitch black so like i said earlier they would have definitely had to know what what they're talking or what they're doing here it's not like they just suddenly said you know let's go cut this thing out there's no way this person definitely had some kind of surgical knowledge now in your report you said they mentioned the leather trade was that right what did they mean by that? On the report, okay, so let me find it. Um, so he said, my, he thought that the knives, again, this is the person doing the inquest, like in the, maybe, you know, maybe it's somebody else's writing down his statements. And that's why that's in like the, the third person. He thought that the knives used by those in the leather trade would not be long enough in the blade. So what there's, there, there's probably maybe oh. somebody dictating notes and they're trying yeah. to figure out what kind of knife it is. They're saying, well, it wouldn't be a leather trade knife. It'd have to be six to eight inches long to cause these cuts. Very slender, very sharp. And they're just maybe trying to narrow it down. I don't, I'm guessing that's why they threw that in there. I'm sure, not sure. sure. Yeah. Thanks for listening. That's the end of part one. Tune in next time for the conclusion of Jack the Ripper. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out our Facebook group and page.